Well, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, reading at verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, reading at verse 9, and while you're uh, looking that up, I'll say what a privilege it is to be with you here. This is my first uh, time to this part of the country, and uh, I've appreciated the warm welcome we've received already, and uh, we're glad to be here. We look to the Lord to bless our time together in these few days of conference. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, reading at verse 9, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Over to Philippians chapter 2, Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 2, and reading at verse 13. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And finally over to chapter 1 of Paul's letter to the Philippians, reading at verse 6. Philippians chapter 1 and reading at verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The only hope for humanity is in the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. The only hope for humanity is in the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no hope for the world in politics. There is no hope in economics. There is no hope in academics. There is no hope in military power or might. There is no hope in the philosophies or religions of this world. As much as some of those things may have a legitimate role in human experience, none of them ultimately have hope for humanity. The only hope is found in the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This certainly was good news to the church at Corinth or to the people at Corinth that became part of the church, whose lives were steeped in 
the hopeless despair of sin, uh, lives that had been ruined, and lives that happily came to know the liberating power of the gospel. And Paul assures those Corinthian believers that even though at one time, like the Ephesians, they had been, like the Ephesians, they had been without God and without hope in the world, through the gospel, everything had changed. And as we've been reminded already this evening, that the gospel, to borrow words from the Roman epistle, is still the power of God unto salvation. And we need to be encouraged, as has also been pointed out to us tonight, we live in a very difficult part of the world. Many years ago, I was at a, a conference, a workers' conference up in Canada, and there was a missionary there who came, and uh, part of his message, he gave a report on a number of the things that had been happening in the part of the world where he had been serving. And there were many good and positive things that happened that the gospel had spread and there were a number of assemblies formed and, and it was a very positive, upbeat kind of report. And then he paused and he looked at us and most of the audience were people from uh, Canada and uh, Michigan and New York State. And he looked at us all and he said, I know that you people work in a very hard part of the world. In other words, the contrast from what they had been enjoying in that part of the mission field with what we had been enjoying in our part of the world was a stark contrast indeed, for it seems we saw little results. But we must never lose sight of the fact that we still possess, and it has been entrusted to us, the only message of hope for the world. It is not that we are one of many messages competing for the answers that people are seeking. We have been entrusted with the only message of hope, the only message that can change a life, the only message that has that transforming power. And despite the apparent indifference of atheists and agnostics and intellectuals so-called, despite the apparent uh, sophisticated self-satisfaction that we see in the world around us, all of these people without Christ, when they lay their head on their pillow at night, they do not have the answer. The gospel is a message of hope for the hopeless, a message of cleansing for the defiled, a message of forgiveness for the guilty. It is a new hope, it is a new beginning. And the world simply does not have the answer. And we do. And we are called to bear witness to the truth. It seems we need to remind ourselves of Paul's own experience on his conversion. Remember when he came to know the Lord, the first words out of his mouth were, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And that's a good thing for all of us to ask. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What he might have me to do is not necessarily going to be the same thing he will have you to do. But he has something for all of us to do. 
And collectively, as local churches, we need to uh, say that same prayer or make that same request of the Lord. Lord, what wilt thou have us to do? Right here in this community, as those who have the knowledge of the gospel and the ability to communicate it, communicate it, what wilt thou have us to do? Right here in this community, how can we reach the people of this community with this life-changing message? The message that truly changes. It's my intention this weekend to consider with you lessons out of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Now, we won't be able to exhaustively analyze every chapter, but simply take a lesson out of the four messages assigned to me uh, this weekend, a lesson out of each chapter. Philippians, of course, is a delightful uh, epistle of Paul. I'm sure you're familiar with it and have read it many times. It is a, it is a warm, uh, encouraging letter, and it is full of, uh, of just wonderful truth that it encourages us. It, it doesn't have the sort of challenges that Paul had to face when he wrote to the Corinthians or the Galatians. Uh, it, it's just brimming with, with a, a warm, friendly style, and it is full of a great deal of encouragement. The lesson out of chapter 1 that I wanted to consider with you is this idea of transformation, the transforming power of the gospel. And verse 6 of chapter 1 that we've read uh, de describes this for us. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And really, this verse of Scripture scan, uh, spans the scope of our entire existence if we are a believer in Christ tonight. Being confident of this very thing, he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now notice there are three ideas that present themselves to us from this verse. It is a work begun. He that hath begun a good work in you. It is a work in progress. He will perform it. And it is a work finished until the day of Jesus Christ. A work begun, a work in progress, and a work finished. Or to put it another way, we could describe it as regeneration, a work begun, begun, a refining of our lives, a work in progress, and a realization of God's intended purpose for us to be seen at the day of Jesus Christ. A work begun, he that hath begun a good work in you. Now, unlike the epistle to the Romans, uh, in connection with the epistle to the Philippians, we do have a record in the book of Acts as to how the church there was formed. Interestingly enough, uh, to the, of the seven churches that Paul uh, wrote to, we have a record of how the church at Philippi was formed, how the church at Ephesus was formed, how the church at Corinth was formed, and how the church at Thessalonica was formed. 
And it's interesting to read the epistles and compare it with the corresponding historical record in the book of Acts. And we see there's a number of, uh, of things that connect and why Paul wrote the things he wrote to the respective churches. And there's a connection with things that took place when those churches were formed. And Acts 16 is a record of how the, the work of God began at Philippi. And it's a most interesting account. You may recall it begins with Paul and his, uh, his uh, workers that were with him. They were in Asia and they were moving around. And we read in the early part of Acts chapter 16 how the, the Spirit suffered them not to go to a certain place, uh, to, to parts of Bithynia. And then uh, another... The next section tells us how uh, the Spirit forbade them not to go to, to Asia. Uh, and it's sort of strange. Here they are anxious to get the gospel out, and they wanted to go to these places, but they had a distinct impression, a, a distinct sense from the Spirit of God that he was closing doors. They, with the best of intentions, wanted to take the gospel to Asia. Now, later on in Paul, uh, Paul's ministry, he could say that all they in Asia heard the word of God. But at this particular time, the Spirit of God was closing the doors for that avenue of service. And sometimes that happens in our Christian life, that the, the Spirit of God does close doors in Christian ministry. And we shouldn't be overcome with discouragement when that happens. Uh, many times young people are enthusiastic about doing something to serve the Lord. They may want to go and serve the Lord maybe as a missionary in another country. And they begin to make preparation and then somehow the whole thing just sort of falls apart or unravels and they're prevented uh, from going. Uh, we had a young couple in our assembly a number of years ago who had expressed an interest to go down and uh, work in Ecuador. And so the elders met with them and talked with them, and, and, and we felt, well, there may be a something here. And uh, as it happened, the missionary uh, that they were going to go and start working with uh, was uh, up in Canada, home on furlough, and we arranged to meet with him and, and talk to him about the work and just to find out what it was about and how he felt about this couple coming, and, and it all uh, it all seemed to be coming together. And so we agreed to commend them to missionary work. And then as the time was set for them to go, as it became, as it got a little closer, they discovered that they were going to be expecting a child. And so it was thought, well, they better delay the departure time because the medical facilities where they were going were not, were not great. And so it was thought that she should maybe uh, have the baby in Canada and, and after that, and things settled down from that, that then they would go. And so they, wait, they waited and they delayed and they deferred the time. And, and then uh, the baby came, and all was well, and so they started thinking again and about when to set a date to go, and we were all in agreement with it. And, and then her husband w wasn't feeling well, having some health problems, and the long and short of it was they diagnosed him with, with uh, a brain tumor, and his condition worsened, and he required, required serious medical attention, and, and it became apparent that it would have been very unwise for them to go to the place that they had planned to go. There, there the door closed, and you say to yourself, well, here's a young couple with so few, it seems, willing to go to the mission field. Here's a young couple exercised before God. They seem to have the right temperament. They were in earnest. They were a spiritual young couple, and God just closed the door. 
And God does that. And that's what happened to Paul and his company. The Spirit of God said specifically. We don't know how the Spirit of God communicated it, though. It may have been circumstances, it may have been health, it may have been finances. We really don't know why, but it was very distinct. God closed that door. But he was closing that door because there was another one that was soon to open. And as they thought about this, and as they were in Asia thinking about where they should go, this is where they get what we call the Macedonian call. It was a call from Europe, really. This going into Philippi was the very first advance of the gospel into Europe. Because what Paul and his company did not know, and would have no way of knowing, that there in the city of Philippi were a group of people seeking after God. It seems to be, have been a company of women who met for prayer. Now, they weren't believers as far as we can tell. They didn't know the gospel, but they were people seeking after God. Now, Paul and his company had no way of knowing that, but the Spirit of God did. And so in closing those doors in Asia, he was opening another one in Europe because the Spirit of God had already been working in advance. And so Paul and his company saw the doors opened and they make their way into that part of Europe and they arrive in the city of Philippi. And there they see this group of women seeking after God. And when Paul came and began to explain the gospel they were attentive to the words of Paul. Their hearts were receptive. And it says there of a, a woman who became very useful and prominent in the work there, a woman by the name of Lydia, it says, whose heart the Lord opened. And these were the early days of the foundation of this church at Philippi. Now in that chapter, Acts chapter 16, there are th would appear to be three notable conversions. There is the conversion of Lydia, who is described there as really a, a, a prosperous businesswoman, an enterprising businesswoman who had evidently prospered, and she became one of the first converts and was used in the work. And then there was, a, and then there was another really strange incident. You may recall how... Uh, uh, and it was really a direct contact with satanic forces uh, where there was this girl who was used in, in soothsaying, as it's called. It was really occult-like practices, and there was evidently satanic influence. And, and, and through this girl uh, associated with, with uh, satanic efforts, she, she identified the apostles in their company as followers of God. And, of course, Paul turned and immediately disassociated himself because he wanted to avoid any confusion between the apostles' company as representatives of the true God and these powers of darkness. There had to be a sharp line of distinction drawn so there'd be no confusion in the minds of people that somehow this satanic occult-like practice was just another version of the gospel. And so Paul separated from that and charged that evil spirit, rebuked that evil spirit, and delivered that girl from the power in which she was held. He commanded the Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ to release her. 
So it's quite possible that this servant girl was a convert in the gospel. And then this is the story, you remember, how Paul and Silas were brought into prison, that they were un, uh, really unlawfully charged and brought into, brought into prison and held there. And this is the story, the dramatic story of the conversion of the Philippian jailer. Remember how uh, they were all uh, miraculously released and, and the jailer was about to take his own life because he felt he had lost all his prisoners and the consequences of this were too uh, horrible to bear. And he was about to kill himself and, and, and Paul intervened and told him not to and, and we have the wonderful story of, of his conversion, how he came to know the Lord. This was all the, the foundations of the church at Philippi. And it's interesting to notice that really people from all walks of life were drawn into the church. Roy mentioned that already about the church at Rome. Well, that was true at the church of Philippi. There was Lydia, uh, probably a well-to-do, prosperous person. There was that servant girl. She might have been what we might call today of, uh, of the lower class. She was being used in a terrible way, and, uh, and uh, she came to, it would appear she came to know the Lord. We have the Philippian jailer. We might call him today a sort of a middle-class person. He was a civil servant. He worked for the, the prison system, and, and he came to know the Lord. And that's what an assembly is. It's a gathering of people from all walks of life who have a common life in Christ because their, their connection with one another is not their social status or their economic status or their academic qualifications. It's their life in Christ. And this church at Philippi became a thriving force and power for God, the foundations of the church at Philippi. And so when Paul writes these words... He, he that hath begun a good work in you, he is no doubt referring to the time when the gospel came to those believers and that that church was established. It was a work of God begun in their lives. Now, I can't help but ask the question tonight to this gathered company, has God begun a good work in your life? Is there a time when you've come to know Christ as your Savior? When you've known what it is to, to put your faith in Him as the one who died for you at the cross of Calvary? When you've come to realize that the only uh, answer for the forgiveness of sins is found in what Christ has done in dying for you? Has God begun a good work in you. It would be a wonderful thing if you would seize the opportunity tonight to yield to Christ and receive Him as your Savior. It would be a supernatural work of God. That's what it is. When you come to know Christ as your Savior, it is, in fact, a supernatural work, a work of God begun in a human life. A real encounter with the living God, as our Lord Jesus Christ called it, being born again. Or what it really means is to be born from above. There's all kinds of strange ideas about what the world calls spirituality today. If you like to go into bookstores like I do, uh, you'll notice that there's always sections on religion and spirituality. And there are some of the most ridiculous books out there. It is unbelievable what people take 
for spiritual experience. Because they're searching, they're groping in the dark, and they realize perhaps there's something more than merely the material. They're looking for something more, but, but, but they're looking for it in all the, all the wrong places. A work of God begun in life begins with the conversion experience coming to know Christ as your Savior. It's a supernatural work. It was a sacrificial work done by our Lord Jesus Christ. That when our Lord Jesus Christ died at the cross of Calvary, he was dying there as a sacrifice for sin for you. It was a sacrificial work. I suppose we might think we make sacrifices sometimes. But some of our sacrifice, some of our sense of sacrifice is, is pretty small, is pretty petty. Our Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life at the cross of Calvary. He was the only one, the only one who ever had that right or that power. He says, I have authority to lay my life down. We don't have that right. Now, there are people, sadly that are driven to despair and will take their own lives in suicide. And there are people that find themselves who are willing, uh, as uh, particularly those who fight in the, in the uh, uh, armed forces, uh, those who engage in, in, um, in civil order and police work, they're putting their life at risk, they're putting it on the line. But only our Lord Jesus Christ could actually lay down his life. And he did that at the cross of Calvary. It was a sacrificial work. At a moment of time chosen by him, he walked into death. It was a sacrificial work. It was a substitutionary work. It was a work done on behalf of others. That Christ had no sins of his own to die for. He was a sinless man, but he died for the sins of the whole world. He died for you, and he died for me. He died on account of my sins. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, Christ died for our sins. We should never get over that fact. The Son of God loved me, Paul would write to the Galatians, and gave himself for me. It was a substitutionary work. It was a selfless work by Christ. It was a saving work. It was a saving work. It saves us. It gives us salvation. It secures us for eternity. This is what Paul is telling the Philippians. He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ secures us for all of eternity. A work begun. He that hath begun a good work in you. Has God begun that work in your life? But then it's also a work in progress. A work in progress. It's a work of refining. That even though the moment we put our faith in Christ... We are secured for eternity. 
And we cannot ever lose that salvation. We become possessors of eternal life. And it is not within our power to, to put us in a place where we could ever lose that eternal life. Even though the work is finished and we are secure, yet nonetheless, God still has a work of refining to do in our lives. An anonymous writer uh, made this observation. He says, the Lord always looks at his people as they will be when they are done. God continues to do a work in his people. Sometimes we, sh we have such little confidence in God's work in others. We can look at one another and we can see the imperfections. We can see the immaturity. We can see the lack of growth. And we really have such little confidence in what God is doing in the lives of others. We can have such little confidence in God's work in us. We can become, become discouraged with our own lack of spiritual progress. You know, when I was a young Christian, and I suppose most young Christians have this experience, I looked at older people and I thought they had pretty well arrived in their spirituality. As a young Christian, and I would look at an old man of 35 and figured he'd pretty well arrived, you know. And then I reached 35 and realized I'm not what I thought 35-year-olds are like. And he began to worry, thinking maybe I'm the only one that has failed so miserably. But surely when you get to 45, that must be pretty well it. Well, I got to 45 and found that that still hadn't arrived. Well, then it must be 55. Well, now I'm thinking it must be 65, surely. And I'm hoping that's the case. If you're 65 or over, don't talk to me tonight. I don't want to know the truth, really. <laughs> you see, it's an ongoing work, isn't it? His work in us is only a beginning, and there's more to follow. There's no crash program of instant perfection in the Christian life. We don't reach sinless perfection here, but rather we are subject to a process of transformation. Not to earn our salvation, but as a result of our salvation, a work of renovation, a work of refining that God does in our lives. He uses time. He uses circumstances. He uses the different stages of our lives. It's a program of changing, of correcting, of encouraging, of shaping, of refining, of grinding, of cutting, of polishing. Job put it this way, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. It's a work of total renovation and reconstruction. You see, when the Lord saved you and he saved me, he sure had his work cut out for him. For we were no prizes when we came to Christ. But he intends to finish the work he started. God doesn't start projects and then leave them unfinished. 
Do you have any unfinished projects around the house? All the wives are nodding their heads. Yes, my husband has lots of unfinished projects around the house. God doesn't start something and then abandon it. And he didn't start in the work of salvation in your life with an intention of abandoning you. And he will not give up. It is a reconstruction. Have you ever been on a construction site? I've never worked on construction sites, but I've had occasion to visit them. And I can't say I fully understand all that goes on. Near to my office right now, there are two big construction projects going on, apartment buildings that are being erected. And as I looked at them, it, it, it looked to be total chaos. There were trucks, first of all, hauling away all kinds of dirt that they had dug up from the, for the foundations. And then all kinds of trucks arriving with stone and sand and, and, and cement. And there were piles of construction materials and, and men and women walking around and I suppose working, or at least making it look like they were working. But the whole thing looked chaotic to me. But I did notice that there is on the property a construction office. And I understand in that construction office there is a foreman. And he has been given plans that have been expertly designed by architects and engineers. And those blueprints are laid out and he is following those blueprints. And he is ordering the materials, and he is ordering the sub-trades, and everything is done in, in the time frame that has been allotted. And systematically, there is a wonderful plan of a beautiful building to be erected. It's been beautifully designed, carefully thought out, and it's going to serve a real purpose in that case of that site that I'm observing now, it is going to be an apartment building, and many people will come and live in those apartments, and I expect that they will be very nice apartments to live in. There's all a grand design, but right now it looks like a bit of a mess. And sometimes our lives look like that. They look chaotic. They look uncertain. They are not neat and tidy. They look a bit of a mess. But there is a grand plan. There is a master builder. And he has expertly designed a plan. And he is going to make you. And he is going to make me like Christ. But the process is sometimes difficult. The process is sometimes confusing. The process is sometimes painful. James put it this way, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations or trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. God has a purpose in every life. And he uses some strange things to bring about that purpose. 
the instrument of trial that's brought to bear in our lives, that cuts into our plans, that brings about disappointment, that brings about loss, that allows failure and mistakes and things that just don't seem fair. And all of these are designed in the hand of the one who gave himself for us to shape us because he has some cutting to do and he has some grinding to do and he has some polishing to do. And these are the very things that he uses to bring about all of these things. The children sometimes sing a chorus. It goes like this, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't hurt us as adults to maybe sing it once in a while. You've likely heard it. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and stars, the sun and the earth, and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. He's still working on me. He's still working on you. He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Scripture is full of case studies of this truth. We think of a, a man like uh, Jacob. Old Jacob, he, he was a man who really, through much of his life, seemed to show little, little evidence of true spirituality or faith. Uh, he, he, he was a man who, who, who seemed to, to navigate through life, uh, always seeking his own interests, and, and really didn't care too much about others. Uh, he, he was one of those men who, who sort of, if it was convenient to obey God, if it served his purposes, he would obey God, but if it didn't serve his purposes, he would pursue his own agenda. And he went up many blind alleys, and he had many failures in his life. And he had many mistakes in his life. And yet God never gave up on him. He, he, he never let go of Jacob. He, he, he chased Jacob up and down and stayed close to Jacob. And bit by bit and piece by piece, Jacob let go of that strong sense of self-will and independence, of pursuing his own interests. And bit by bit and piece by piece, through grinding and cutting and refining, God worked in Jacob. And Jacob gets to the end of his life. And there's a beautiful picture. Remember how he is brought before Pharaoh. Joseph brings him before Pharaoh. And here we find <coughs> Jacob, an old man, leaning upon his staff. No self-interest anymore. No, no, no plans of his own. No scheming or dreaming. But he stands before the Pharaoh of Egypt and he gives testimony to the God of Israel. The God who had led him through. Here was a man broken and yielded to God. A man that God changed, a man that God began a good work and performed it throughout his life. Jacob leaves the scene. He dies and God soon begins to appear to those who follow. He appears to Moses. And how does he identify himself? 
He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's your God and he's my God and he does not bail out on us. But he will perform the work he has started. We see it in the life of, of Moses. How God worked in Moses' life and we know the history of Moses. Much the same thing as God developed Moses and trained Moses and taught Moses lessons. You know, Moses' life wasn't easy. It mustn't have been easy. Those hard lessons learned out in the wilderness. We think of another man, Joseph, uh, earlier on. Remember how Joseph was, was, was wrongfully accused, spent all those years in prison? Boy, that dream that he heard, that he had years ago, he must have had some doubts about that. Uh, nothing like that's recorded in Scripture, but he must have wondered as those long years in prison passed by, had God forgotten him? Did God not answer prayer? Had God not promised him? What was he doing here in this prison? Yet all the time God was working, working, working. The psalmist says of that period, uh, it says that iron entered his soul. He, he was forged and he was made in those years of, of apparent loss and disappointment. God was working in him. He was making Joseph the man that Joseph needed to be for what he would be called to do later on as he was brought back into prominence in Egypt, but he had to have spent that time in prison or he would have been useless when, he, when, when his uh, honor was restored. God did a tremendous work in the life, life of Joseph. And of course, on and on it goes. We see it in the life of Paul himself, the transformation that took place in his life. He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it. And God is working in your life and he is working in my life. It's a work in progress. And then finally, it's a work finished. The realization of all of his purposes. Top lady put it this way in a hymn we sometimes sing. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen. And never was forfeited yet. He will finish the work he has begun. He puts it this way. He says, he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, there are several days recorded in the New Testament for us. We have the day of Christ. We have the day of the Lord. Uh, we have the day of God. But it seems to me that this uh, idea here that Paul is speaking about is, is likely referring to a couple of significant things that are going to take place in the life of the Christian. He could perhaps be referring to the rapture of the church when the Lord will come to take the church away. In other words, Paul is saying to these Philippians that you're secure until the Lord comes, the day of rapture. He, he could be referring to, to, to the day, uh, and the Corinthian epistle speaks about this, uh, the day of Christ in connection with the judgment seat of Christ for the believer, when, when he will give reward to those that have served faithfully. We read of this in, in uh, the Corinthian epistle, a future day of our final salvation, but it will also be a day of, of fiery 
evaluation, when our works are going to be tried, and that which has been, been, been really of ourselves in our Christian lives is going to be burned up, even in the name of Christian service. And that which was done truly for the Lord, described by Paul there as works of, uh, of gold, silver, and precious stones, they will remain. And there's going to be a day of great reward in a coming day. And we are urged to live in light of this, for Paul does warn us that it's possible that we would suffer loss on that day. Not loss of salvation, of course, but loss of reward. And that is to be taken as a significant thing. In other words, a Christian life that is lived purely according to the flesh, even in the name of Christian service, a life that is squandered away in the trivial things of this world as a Christian, we are going to... Uh, face a great loss at the judgment seat of Christ. And that would be an appalling tragedy when we think that all of us have the opportunity to find the place that God has for us and to live our lives in useful service. That's true of every Christian that's gathered in this meeting tonight. That God wants to use every single one of us in his own special way. Now, you might not feel that way. You might not feel you're spiritual enough or educated enough or mature enough or whatever. But don't listen to those ideas. God wants to use you in a special way. And the judgment seat of Christ tells us there is reward for faithful service. So the question is, am I plugged in to where God wants to use me? It will be a day of fiery evaluation. It will be a day of future glorification. That when we are brought to this day of Christ, the realization of all that God intended in saving us, we are going to step into our own glorification. Sometimes people ask the question, what are we going to look like in heaven? And so there's all kinds of ideas about that, about what we're going to look like in heaven. And uh, some people, I read one, one time uh, not too long ago that this person had reasoned that we are going to be uh, what we were when we were 33 years of age. Because that's when, when that was the life of Christ, the human life of Christ. And they somehow thought that that's what we're going to look like when we get to heaven. I guess they thought they looked pretty good at 33. I don't know, but uh, that's what they thought. I mean, it seems crazy to me, but that's what they thought. And uh, I don't know if the Bible really tells us what we're going to look like. But it does tell us one thing. John tells us this in 1 John 3 and 2. He says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. So it seems we don't really know. He says, we do know something. We know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That the work of God completed in your life and mine will be to make you and to make me like Christ. Every single one of us. He is going to pursue us patiently, persistently, with determination, and he is going to systematically re remove all that is not like Christ. And in the final realization, the final glorification, we shall be like him. 
That's the prospect for the Christian believer. That's our hope. That's our future. The prospect for us for eternity is nothing but glorious. You won't be disappointed when you get to heaven. The future for us is bright. But the process has begun here and now. And our responsibility, our challenge, is to be cooperative with this transforming process, with all of its difficulties, to trust God through the experiences of life. He knows what he's doing in your life, and he knows what he's doing in my life. And we should not be discouraged. We should not fight the circumstances. We should yield to what God is doing, as difficult as painful as they might be to us here and now, we must realize there is a larger purpose at work that is far more glorious than we can imagine. Job, again, put it this way. Remarkable statement, really, when you think of the, the limitation of certainly written revelation that Job would have had. Job 19 and 25, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eye shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. We shall see him. He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We'll just uh, close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the uh, privilege we have of meeting together tonight and to look into the Word of God. We thank Thee for its living quality, that this is not a cunningly devised fable. And we bless Thee for its truth. And we pray that it might sink into our hearts and our minds, that it might have its intended effect on all of our lives that we might sense the presence of the Lord and that we might know we have heard his voice during these conference days. We need the help and power of the Spirit of God for this to happen. And so we come with that sense of expectation and thanksgiving tonight for all that he has done and will yet do. We ask thy blessing upon us now in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and to his honor and glory.